0: I'm going to take you to the book of Hebrews this morning and if you are a if you're a Christian I in, I invite you to to just be amazed once again at at this great offer of salvation that God has has granted you and that you have received and you would rejoice in that and Pray that others would would receive that message. And if you are not a Christian, I would encourage you to pay close attention to, to the book of Hebrews that I will share with you this morning, because I'm going to summarize the message of the Bible in a single sermon. Is that possible? Can a preacher really summarize the Bible in one sermon? Well, I'm going to try. And not only will I attempt to summarize the message of the Bible... For you in one sermon this morning, but I'm going to declare to you why you should believe it. Why you should receive exactly what the Bible says. And while the Bible may seem like a a large book, it is a, it's really a profoundly simple message. The Bible is God revealing Himself to His creation that's why it's called revelation it's god revealing himself to to mankind and he must do that because of that sin nature that I, that I talked about human beings can look around wherever you are from you can see in creation the 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 magnificence you can see the detail you can see the intricacy you can look out into space and see the stars and tell that we are we are uh, We didn't come up with this ourselves. There's something greater. There's someone greater. There's a Creator. And yet, even though you can see in creation the beauty of God, the power of God, that we're we're not alone, it, it takes the Bible, it takes God's revelation to open our eyes to who He is and what He's done because of the blindness of our own hearts. The Bible begins with creation in chapters 1 and 2. God declares Himself to be the creator of all things, of all people. He's creator of the earth, creator of the universe, creator of, of mankind, the animals, the fish and the birds. He created, and that's how the Bible starts. The first two chapters of the Bible, a very small portion of the Bible, but that's where it begins, that God is and that He's the creator. And then immediately in chapter 3, the fall comes. Man giving the opportunity to live amongst His creation and obey His Creator, man chooses to rebel. Man chooses to say to his Creator, I'm going to live my own way and do what what I want to do. And that's called the fall. And from that point, all humanity that's followed after the first man and woman have been born with that rebellion in their hearts. And in Genesis chapter 3... God makes a promise of redemption. He could have left humanity in that condition, but He doesn't. And that while man would continue in his rebellion against his Creator and continue in sin, God loves and makes a way to redeem mankind. And the rest of the Bible, as we said when we were going through the foundation series, just declares how how God would do that. He would reveal Himself to a man, Abraham. He would raise up a people of Israel to reveal Himself. And then where we're going to see in the book of Hebrews is the pinnacle of, of revelation. That's the coming of Jesus Christ. You can trace the story of the Bible this way. God creates, man rebels, God makes a promise to save, and the rest of the Bible, He fulfills it. And the linchpin or the, the pinnacle of, of the Bible is the coming of Jesus Christ. When God came in human flesh, when He lived the life that you should have lived, that I should have lived, when He lived perfectly, Jesus was sinless and then He willingly laid His life down. He willingly became a sacrifice in your place. He was humbled, as we just sang, under the grave and then He rose victoriously ...from the dead, declaring that salvation is available to anyone through his, through his work. At the right time, God Himself would come into His creation in the, in the flesh of a man. And that person was Jesus Christ. And Jesus would reveal to us who God is. As I said, in creation you can see God's power. Romans 1 says the power of the Godhead is revealed. You look at a storm and you can see the power... That that is there. If you think a storm, a hurricane, a tsunami, whatever it is, is powerful. Think about the One who created all of those things, how powerful He is. Creation reveals to us God's power. The Bible reveals to us who God is, who we are in sin. But the person of Jesus Christ, Hebrews is going to tell us this morning, fully reveals God. If you want to know what God is like, Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon says that Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega of the Bible. He is the constant theme of its sacred pages. From first to last, they testify of Him. The Scriptures are the swaddling bands of the Holy Child Jesus. Unroll them and you will find the Savior. The quintessence of the Word of God is Christ. Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God because He was God. So if you're not there, go to Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to cover the first 14 verses. And let's read in verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. That's... The Jews, the children of Israel. The same God has in these last times spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. There is the Creator, the creation, who being the brightness of His glory and the expressed image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And we'll stop there. We're we'll going to read through verse 14, but, but the writer of Hebrews introduces the theme. Jesus Christ is God and He reveals God to us. In the book of Hebrews, if you want to summarize the theme, it's Jesus is better than all of the other revelations. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the former priesthood. Jesus is superior because Jesus was God. All of those things before were shadows of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to us that Jesus has come. And I want to show you this morning, this. there's five descriptions of Jesus in chapter 1. And, and I want to show you this morning the tragedy of rejecting this message that the writer of Hebrews gives us through five descriptions of Jesus Christ. And the first one is that Jesus Christ is revealed as the Trinitarian Son. He's revealed as the Trinitarian Son. Verses 1 through 4 tells us that Jesus was God, and while there were prophets in the past, there is the Old Testament that the coming of Jesus reveals to us God. And then in verse 5, he begins to explain how he was revealed. Look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, Jesus is revealed here in a specific way. And if you pay close attention to the text, you can see he's revealed as as the son of God. One of the most difficult things for, for non-Christians, people that have never read the Bible, people that are steeped in other religions, one of the most difficult things for them to believe is that there is one exclusive God, not many. I mean, Hindus, religious groups, pagans of old, believed in many gods. There's a pantheon of gods. There's the there's the rain god. There's the sun god. There's the god of fertility. There's the god for anything that you need. They looked at life and they saw their needs, whatever their needs were, and, and they said, I need someone to help me in this area. I need someone to help me in war. I need someone to help me in planting my crops. I need someone to bring the rain. And so they created gods... They could do that, and they began to worship them. There's a God for everything. And if you go around the world still, in some third world countries, you'll find that each of those gods typically have an idol or a shrine, something that would represent that, that God. And while in educated countries today, you probably won't find that, they're, they're, too, they're too sophisticated to have a little idol or a shrine, they would just say there's many ways. It means the same thing. There's Allah, there's Christ, there's Buddha, there's spiritual energy. They all say they lead to the same place wherever that place is. And yet the Bible declares that there is one God and one alone. And salvation is exclusive through Him. And all of the other religions of the world are not really God's at all. He alone is our Creator. God is exclusive. And he eternally exists in the three persons, Father, Son, and the Spirit. God is one in essence, three in, in person. And verse five here declares Jesus' birth, that God took upon himself human flesh in order to in order to fulfill a plan. Look at verse five. This goes off the theme of he's a better than the angels. To which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I've begotten you, and I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a a son. He's quoting Psalm two, verse seven, and Second Samuel seven, fourteen, and declares Jesus Christ to be the eternal Son of God. Jesus was God, but He took upon Himself human flesh in the incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Christmas is about the coming of Jesus. It's about the incarnation. It's about the God of heaven coming to earth, and taking upon Himself human flesh, and walking among us condescending, as we read this morning about that throne room, that that God is worshipped constantly. This God, who is worthy of worship constantly, comes to earth. Born of a virgin, born of Mary. And that's how He enters into the world. That's how He receives this body. Here you are, my Son, today I have begotten you. That's what this is talking about. Jesus was God and took on human flesh in the Incarnation. Philippians 2 describes His coming and His purpose in coming. Listen to Philippians 2, verses 5-8. through This is an exhortation to us as Christians. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. What attitude was in Christ Jesus? What are we supposed to imitate? Well, here it is. Here's the attitude in Jesus when He came. Who, although He existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be used for his own benefit. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. That's saying to you as a Christian, is if the God of heaven, the creator of all mankind, would stoop and come take upon His own creation that He might go to the cross on their behalf, that, that He would willingly lay His life down. No one killed Jesus. Jesus willingly laid His life down. Yes, human beings nailed Him to the cross, but they couldn't have done that unless Jesus willingly allowed them to. And if, if God, the God of heaven would do that for you, then how much more should we humble ourselves? not exalt ourselves in pride, and, and live for, for other people. Jesus here is revealed as the Son, and He's the begotten of God. He condescended, He came to earth, He took on human flesh, and He was fully God, and whenever He took upon human flesh, He became fully man. The begotten of God, He's born of a woman, He came by the Spirit of God in human flesh. In Hebrews 10.4, we won't go there, but if you turn over to chapter 10, verse 4, you'll find the significance of that. It wasn't just so Jesus could walk among us and reveal Himself while He did that. He took upon Himself human flesh so He could bleed and die, so He could live in your place as a substitute. While you have no worth, you have no value, you can't go before God and say, look at my works, look at my heart, it's pure, look at everything I've done, therefore let me into heaven. But Jesus could do that. And Jesus came as a man, so He could do that. And then, for all of the sins that you ever committed, you would have to pay the penalty for those sins. You would have to die. The wrath of God would have to come upon you. And so Jesus has a human body, so He could go and take the wrath of, of God, shed His blood as, as, as the replacement for, for Adam. That's what Hebrews 10.4 says. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. He says it's impossible for the sacrifice of animals, or the sacrifice of rice, or the sacrifice of works, or whatever. It's not possible for anything that man could do, or anything that that an animal could do could ever take away the sins, the, the offense of a holy God to His creation. But when Christ came into the world, He... He did so in a body prepared for Him. Therefore, when He came into the world, He, that's Jesus, said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for Me. Jesus coming in the incarnation was part of the plan. It was the plan for Jesus to come and and have a human body. In burnt offering and sacrifices for sin, you have no pleasure. That, that just means they couldn't satisfy God. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of your book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. The Bible declares what Jesus accomplished for us is He did the will of the Father. Came in human form as a sacrifice and a substitute and accomplished the will of the Father. It would be a tragedy... If that was true about Jesus Christ, then it is to to reject the salvation offered from God Himself. Let me give you the the second way Jesus is revealed here. He's revealed as the eternal God. Look at verse 6. He's revealed as a Trinitarian Son. He's revealed as the eternal God. Verse 6. It says, but when He again brings... The firstborn into the world, he says, let all of the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he said, who makes his angels spirits and ministers of, of fire? says here that Jesus is the firstborn. It's emphasizing his position, his, his prominence. Jesus is in the preeminent position as the Son of God. And because of that, he's worshipped. Let all the angels of God worship him. Many other religions present Jesus as important, but they stop short of deity. The Bible doesn't stop short of deity. The Bible declares that Jesus is God. The Quran says that Jesus was a prophet. It's a prophet of God. He's a good guy. Sects of Judaism say that he was a great rabbi, sent from God. You remember what Nicodemus said? Surely we could tell from the works that you do in John three that you are a you're a great teacher. Buddhists say that He was a great human teacher that can help with enlightenment. The Jehovah's Witnesses say that he was perfect man, but he wasn't God. The Mormons say that he was Lucifer's brother. But anything less than what the Bible declares here, that Jesus was fully God, there's no salvation. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was the eternal God and is worshipped by angels. Where do you see that? Look Look at what he says, what he quotes here from... Psalm verse 6, let all of the angels of God worship Him. What's the significance of that? Worship is reserved for God alone. God never says, worship mankind. God never says, worship the angels. He never says, worship the creation. God says, I am a holy and jealous God. You will worship me and me alone. And here, God in His very Word says, let the angels of God worship Jesus. If Jesus wasn't God, then that passage promotes idolatry. If Jesus was nothing more than a teacher, then it God is saying, worship a teacher, and that's not what you do. Well, they're important. It doesn't command men just to honor Jesus like a subject of a king. It commands them to worship Him like deity. Think of... Think of when when Jesus came at His birth. What did the kingmakers, what did the magi do whenever Jesus came? When they found Him who was born King of the Jews, the one who was supposed to be the Messiah, God Himself, what did the magi do whenever they, whenever they found the young baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger? They bowed and they worshipped Him. Jesus, from His birth, was worshipped as deity and and king. And that's what you must do as well if you hope to be saved from your sin. You can't just follow Jesus as a good teacher. You acknowledge Him as God. You bow the knee before Him. You say, you are God and I am not. It would be tragedy. If this is how Jesus is revealed, to neglect so great a salvation offered by God Himself... Let me give you the third one. He's revealed here as the preeminent King. He's revealed as the Son. He's revealed as the Trinitarian God. All of these revelations are so that you could know who God is. And the third one, He's revealed as a King, just any King, preeminent King. Look at verse eight. Verse seven he makes his angels of spirit spirits and ministers of flame of fire. And verse eight, but to the Son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. He's quoting Psalm forty five verses six and seven. Here the Father, in His own words, is declaring the deity of His Son. You question, just because angels are commanded to worship Him, whether He's deity? Look at this verse. This is attributed to Jesus. God is saying, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. (laughs) The Father is declaring the deity of Christ here. With this verse, the writer of Hebrews completes the presentation of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. He's the revelation of God, verse 1. He's the prophet. He's the one who would proclaim God to us. He's like a priest. He, he makes purifications of sins in verse 3. And now he's the reigning king. And the reference here is to the Davidic covenant. Jesus Christ is king and he'll, re- he'll reign on the earth one day. That'll be on the throne of his father, David regardless of what CNN or anybody else who hypes the situation in the Middle East have to say about it. You say, how can Jesus be a king? Where's his throne? Where is he ruling and reigning? I don't see any, any place on the earth today where here is the kingdom of Jesus, and King Jesus is, is here, and here's the flag of, of King Jesus. Jesus. Well, Christ is king over all of creation. But in His mercy, He's allowing usurpers to live in His kingdom while He calls them to repent. It's His mercy that Jesus has not established His kingdom on the earth yet. Because if Jesus would, have to, if Jesus would establish His kingdom on the earth today, then every man, woman, boy, and girl would be reconciled to the king. They would have to be either in the kingdom or outside of the kingdom. And one day that will happen. But today, he reigns from heaven calling men and women to repent, to believe. Because there is a kingdom coming one day. Listen to how Paul explains this to to pagans, to the Greeks in Acts 17. This is on the Areopagus. Acts 17, verse 24. This is how he explains God, Christ, to religious people. He says, God who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. If you go to Acts 17 and read it, there is there are idols there, there are temples there for all these different pantheons of gods. And, and they even had a god was the unknown God. Just to make sure that we've got all of our deities covered, we don't want to offend any deity, let's have the unknown God here. And Paul stands and proclaims to them, before all of these, these idols and temples, he says, God who made the world and everything in it, since He's Lord of heaven and earth, He doesn't dwell in temples made with, with hands. Nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needs anything, since He gives life and breath in all things. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the faces of the earth and has determined their pre appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and in hope might grope for Him or find Him, though He's not far from any one of us. In Him we live and move and, and have our being. We are His offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art or man's devising. I mean, he's saying, look at these temples, look at these idols. I mean, these are supposed to represent the, the God, the creator of the, of the universe. Your hands, human hands, made these things. How could that be God? God gives you life and breath and, and everything. I told you the story before when you visit Nepal or or some place where there's a shrine or or a temple that that the, the worshipers will go to the little shrine and the little temple and they'll ring the bell to get the God's attention, to wake him up if he's sleeping. Well, if I have to wake God up because He's sleeping, if God doesn't know I'm even there to worship Him, I don't think that that's a God that I want to worship. Do you? That's what Paul's basically saying here in a different form. Look at all of these idols. Look at all these temples. I mean, they're made by human hands. You really think God who created the universe dwells in something like that? You really think gold or silver or precious stone could represent the God of the universe? You're His offspring. And listen to what he says in verse 30. In these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day that's in the future in which he'll judge the world in righteousness. And how will God judge the world? By their works? By their religions? By how good they are? No. He's appointed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. That's... By Jesus. And He gives assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the declaration that He wasn't some heretical rabbi running around, that He was truly God. God's not going to raise a heretic from the dead. Paul declares here that God has no need of anything from man. He made us all. He placed us where we're at. All nations, all peoples whether you're in the United States or Australia or China or Japan, wherever it is, so that we would seek God and possibly find Him. And when He says here He overlooked their ignorance throughout all time, it means that He's let us live in His world without bringing immediate judgment. But there's a coming of day in which King Jesus will come to the earth and when He comes, He will reconcile all things to Himself. And you will either be revealed as in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. And he'll do that from his throne. Let me give you the fourth one here. Salvation offered by a king. Salvation offered by a son, by God himself, and by a king. And He's also revealed as the sovereign creator. He has the right to rule because... He created his subjects. Look at verse 10. Verse 8 and 9 reveals Jesus, echoes his deity, reveals him as as a king. And here's where his authority comes from in verse 10. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens of the works of your hands. They will perish. All of creation will perish, but, but you will remain. They will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not fail. They'll never end. You know why Jesus has the right to judge you one day? Because He's your Creator. The Creator has the right to to command, to judge His creation. So verse 10 is saying, the authority comes from Christ being the the Creator. That's where the right to rule stems from. The one who made something has the right to do with it as He pleases. And you learned that whenever you were a child. Whenever you disobeyed your mother mother and father command you because you came forth from their loins, from their womb. And as my mother used to say, I brought you into this world and I can take you out again if you don't obey me. It's probably been about two years, but one of the clearest examples and clearest illustrations of Jesus as the creator and he has the right to rule. Comes from one from that D.A. Carson told at the next conference several years ago. Probably told it elsewhere. But he tells the story of a young teacher who came out of college from Ireland. And she was brought into a school as a brand new teacher, and they taught the Bible in the school. And while she was not trained in the Bible, that's where they needed a teacher, so they put her there. And she had She had fourth grade boys. Anybody in here teach our Sunday school of fourth grade boys? God bless you, whoever you are. Not only was it fourth grade boys, but it was a special needs class. The boys were disorderly, they didn't care much about learning, and they wouldn't listen, and and here's the teacher, she has to teach them the Bible. She was not making any headway with them, and then she came up with an idea. So she puts the books aside. She comes in the next day and tells them, we're going to start creating a world. So she gets out the plaster of Paris and the clay, and she said, we're going to take this big board, and she gets with this big large piece of, of plywood, and, and we're going to start creating this world, and we're going to start with little creatures. We're going to make little creatures, and... And each of you are going to make them. And you can make them however you like, whatever you like. You can make them look like whatever you want. You can make them look like little monsters. You can make them look like your brother. You can make them look like something you saw on television. I don't care. I just want you to make some little creatures. And they did. And you can imagine what fourth grade boys came up with. I mean, some of them were hideous. And so then the teacher, after she makes these little the boys make these little creatures. She puts them in the oven and, and she hardens them. And, and so the next day she comes in and says, now we have to create a world for these little creatures to live in. So she took the board and started making... The boys started making mountains and streams and lakes and trees and a train station. Okay, we've got these little creatures. and We've got a world for them to live in. Do you think these little creatures need some rules, the teacher says? To these little fourth grade boys, what would be good for them? What would be safe? What rules do you think they need? So she gets her chalk out and she goes to write on the board, listening intently to the little fourth grade boys. And one of them raises their hand and says, yes, they need some rules. So first rule, don't go near the lake, you might fall in and dissolve. So she writes it on the board. And another one raises his hand, don't, don't go near the edge of the, of the board The edge of the our world here. You might fall off and then you'll shatter in a million pieces. One of them said, Don't go don't get into fights. You might tear each other's arms off. You're just clay. So she writes all this on the board. And eventually she has about twenty rules. And she stands back and looks at the twenty rules and says, Boy, you know, that's an awful lot of rules for for these little creatures like this. Do you think we could reduce that down to like one or two rules? And one young man yelled out, Teacher, just tell them, do what I tell you to do. That's the rule. It's do what I tell you to do. And they had a great time. And they left. And the next day they come back to class and they're excited to see what they're going to create, what they're going to do today. They've created the creatures and the world for the living. They've given them rules that are good. They come back in the class excited. And the teacher gets up in front of the class and says, I've got a problem here. I've been wondering in my head what would happen if one of these little creatures suddenly stood up and looked at you and, and said, I don't like your rules. In fact, I don't like you. As a matter of fact, this is my world. That's my train station, that's my lake, that's my friends. I'm, I'm going to, to live my way. I'm not interested in your rules, and I'm going to do what I want to do. She said, what would you do to these little four-year-old boys? And the boys paused for a minute and then one of them said, well, I'd smash them into bits. Exactly what I would do. And then the teacher of the Bible opened Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And she reads, But the God of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 was a forbearing God. He created you and all things in it. And He gave you good rules to live by. But you rose up one day and declared it was your world and you were your own creation and you weren't going to live by His rules any longer. And rather than smash you to pieces, this forbearing, loving God instituted the plan for eternity in love-bearing with sinners, not just breaking their necks, though he could have, in perfect judgment, squashed such a rebellion. The sentence of death was imposed but delayed and delayed until in the fullness of time a Savior came because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And the Bible says in Him, in our Creator, we live and move and have our being. He gives us breath and life and everything. And He has absolute right to command. And yet in our sin, we have absolute rebellion to decide to live however we want to live. And whenever you look into the face of Jesus, rather than seeing an angry God who has every right to smash you into bits, you see a loving Savior who came on your behalf and took that penalty and punishment and then offers you free forgiveness. It would be a tragedy to neglect salvation offered by such a creator. Let me give you the the last one. Not only would it be a tragedy, it would be foolish because Jesus is revealed as the righteous judge. Look at verse 13. He ends this whole section about Jesus being better than the angels. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Angels are for believers. They're, they're here to serve those who will inherit salvation. But look at what he says to Jesus. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. And he quotes Psalm 110. He declares here that Jesus is the sovereign Lord will will reign as a righteous judge. The idea here, till I make your enemies your footstool, is a a picture, it's a symbolic picture that used to to happen all of the time. Whenever a king would conquer another people, they would send an army in, and whoever the leader of that conquered people, they would would be brought before the king, the one who, who won in battle, and whoever the leader of that people... He would come and the conquering king would sit upon his throne and the conquered king would come and he would lay down at the foot of the throne of the conquering king at his feet. And a footstool was like a little stool that was down there and that conquered king would lay his neck on that stool and the conquering king would stand up and he would put his foot symbolically on the neck of the conquered king and he would stand before all of his people representing I am the one who has conquered my enemy. You see, he's under my feet. That's the picture that's given here in Psalm. And he says this about Jesus. Jesus, after he died, rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God because his work was complete. Jesus cried from the cross, it is accomplished. It's finished. The work that I came to do is done. Atonement has been made. He goes to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God, meaning that he is in an exalted position and he's not standing, he's seated. And one day, King Jesus will get up and he will return. And when he does, he will conquer. The king will return. And there will be the men and women that reject Jesus as king now when King Jesus comes. They will bow before his throne and acknowledge who he is. The same one that offers you mercy today will be the one who judges you. And the mercy that he offers you today will just add... To your just condemnation. He will say, Did I not reveal myself as creator and everything around you? And did you not reject that? Yes, you'll have to say. Did I not present to you other Christians that would show you what Jesus looks like? Did you not send her those sermons to hear whenever I declared myself? Yes, you'll have to say. Jesus did not come to enact judgment the first time. He came to inaugurate salvation. But the next time He comes, it will not be to save but to rule. Listen to what John 12 says, verses 47 through 48. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to the world to judge the world but to save the world. That's talking about His first coming. And he that rejects me and receives not my words has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same will judge him in the last day. On the last day, you stand before him and all of your works will be brought before you and it will be proven that you're unrighteous. You have no standing before God. I have no standing before God. We're all sinners. There's none Righteous. And the word that was spoken about Jesus will be brought before you that day and and He will say, did I not come as the humble son? Did I not fulfill the Father's will on the cross even though you could not? Did I not die as a purification for sins? Did I not offer all of this to you? And you will have to say, yes, you did. And He will say, but you would not come. And now I must send you away. It would be a tragedy to neglect so great a salvation offered by your judge before he ever sits down on the throne to judge you. Now he is your Savior. Then he will be your judge. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must give more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved to be unchanging, steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience reserved a just reward, if everything that God promised in the Old Testament, everything that God has brought brought about to pass up to the coming of Christ was true and every transgression received a just reward. If that's true, and now Jesus has come and He has revealed the Father, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. God also bearing witness with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his, to his own will. And the answer to verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect the greatest salvation? The answer is, you won't. Given all the Son has done and all that God has made plain, you won't escape that day why would you want to? Why would you want to run to anybody but Jesus? He says, Today, if you'll harden not your hearts, but you'll come to Him, acknowledge that He is God, repent of your sins, trust in the work that He accomplished on the cross, He will save you. And then you can sing with joy in your heart because Jesus is a great Savior.